Welcome to the Lenten Series podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be able to join you in this season of reflection and repentance as we make our way to the commemoration of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined in this season by some of Pittsburgh's most well-known and influential pastors who will be leading us on one of the Psalms each week. You can find more messages like this to aid in your Lenten and faith experience on our website, ccgf.org, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also keep up with Christ Church on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here is this week's Lenten message. Grace and peace to you. The most intimate discussions often happen at the dinner table. Is it like that in your house? I know if you came to my house, we'll sit and have dinner with guests at our table, and we'll linger there for hours, having conversations, some of the best conversations. I know with my wife and my daughters, Some of the most important conversations we've had have been at the dinner table. You feel that in your life? This is something that Christians have experienced for centuries. I mean, the the, the table is a sacred place, a sacred gathering spot. The reformer Martin Luther knew this well. Martin Luther famously lived in this great castle called the Black Cloister. And in the Black Cloister, Luther had this grand dinner table. And he was known to entertain guests there on a frequent basis. Students, clergy, faculty would come and gather at the grand dinner table in Luther's black cloister. And there, it's said that he had these remarkable discussions that were beyond even what a seminarian would expect in the classroom. Deep theology, a deep understanding of who God is. In fact, those conversations were so famous that they were captured in a book that's called Table Talk. Table Talk, because the dinner table is a place where the most intimate discussions take place. Jesus Christ, of course, understood this really, really well. In fact, in the passage that Gideon just read from John 13, the Gospel of John, we see that after Judas had departed from the room, and that's important, after Judas had departed from the room, they gathered anew at the table. And they had what was probably, to that point, the most intimate discussion they'd ever had. And it's amazing here in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we're privy to this table talk that Jesus has with now the 11 at the table. And I believe that there are great truths for us to consider as we come to this Maundy Thursday evening. And I would suggest to you that there, there are three important table talk discussions that we need to be clued into as we consider Jesus in this holy week. One of the table talk discussions is a truth. The second is a command. And the third is a warning. Let's look at the text tonight. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John 13. You can follow along on the screens as well. I'd encourage you to use an app on a phone, if that's, if that's the way that you engage with the scriptures. But let's engage 
with the Word of God. And I want to go through this passage piece by piece, looking at these table talk elements that Jesus presents to us. Come to the table with me now. Back in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Again, when he was gone, he being Judas, when Judas had left the room, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, so we, we pick up the story, and it's interesting. Jesus here uses an expression. They only used once. In a translation that I've read to you in verse 33, he refers to the 11 as my children. But the literal translation is little children. Jesus says to the 11, he says, little children. This is a term of affection. This is a term of great compassion. And I believe that when Jesus is speaking here, he's not just speaking to the 11 room. He knew, he had a view. He was also speaking to us. And so he says, little children, dear children. He speaks to us like a loving father. And what does he say? Well, he says some things that had to be confusing to the disciples. I mean, what he says here in verses 31 and 32 and even 33 and 34 had to be a little bit of a riddle to them. The things he was saying, I mean, he was using verbs that were in the past tense. That had to be confusing. He says, the Son of Man is glorified, E.D. at the end. God is glorified in him. What was he talking about? We know because we know the end of the story. But for them, this had to be confounding. They had to be a bit confused. But here's what Jesus was talking about. Why is he speaking in verbs in the past tense? Well, because the glorification of God, the glorification of Jesus was so near. It was so close. It was so certain. It was so complete that it was as if it had already taken place. This is important. This is, this is the truth that I'm talking about. The truth is this. The cross brought glory to both the Father and the Son. Put that in your theological bank. This is important. The cross brought glory to both the Father and the Son, and it was so near. It was so complete. It, it was so certain that it's as if it had been accomplished in the past. And so Jesus says, God is glorified. The Son is glorified. That's how certain this is. And it was, it was accomplished in purpose and would be accomplished in reality in just a few hours. I mean, really, the breakdown is this. The translation of what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying the crucifixion, my crucifixion, Jesus is saying, is at hand. In fact, he's saying, he's saying the work is complete. The work is finished. And he's saying to these dear children of his, these little children, he says, listen, this is going to really cause you some distress. You are going to be in grief. You're going to be dismayed because what's going to happen during the next hours. But he says this, he says, but we, my father and I will be glorified. Well, how is it? 
that through crucifixion, in the midst of this table talk, would bring God glory, would bring Jesus glory. Well, let's look at some ways. How is God glorified? Well, God is glorified in that he is shown to be wise. God had a plan. That plan is reflected in the prophets and in the law and all of the Old Testament. God's plan is evident. It's revealed. And so God is glorified as being wise. God is glorified as being faithful. Faithful in that he is a promise keeper. The very plans that are revealed in the Old Testament now are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So God is glorified in his wisdom and his faithfulness. God is glorified in that he is shown to be holy. His law, the righteous standard of his law, has not been transgressed, has not been compromised. God's law is holy as he is holy. And, and, and through Jesus, through the Lamb of God, the law and the wrath of God, because of sin, was satisfied. And so God is glorified, and he's shown to be holy, but he's also shown to be loving. In great compassion, God provides a redeemer. God provides a way out through Jesus, and so God is glorified in this hour. It's complete. But not only is God glorified, the Son is also glorified. The Son is seen and revealed as a person of compassion. Jesus Christ, through his passion, through his unending love, goes to the full extent. In fact, the very first verse of John 13 says, Jesus had loved his own to the full extent. And here we see Jesus on the edge of it saying, the son is glorified because of his great compassion, his great love for his people. The son is also glorified and he's shown to be steadfast. He is patient. He sees the purpose all the way through. The agony of the cross, the humiliation of the, of, of the guards, the, the insults, the mockery, he sees it all the way through. He's glorified and shown to be steadfast, and he's also glorified and he's shown to be powerful. Jesus is shown to be the one who not only endures the agony, the physical agony of the cross, but he also bears the humiliation of sin, of the sins of the world, all of the sins of the world, on the cross. He's glorified and he's seen as powerful also because he defeats the enemy, Satan, once and for all. And so Jesus is glorified at the cross. We have this great truth that through the cross we see that, that Jesus and the Father, God, are glorified. And here's the amazing thing about all this. Jesus does not seem to speak about this in a way that he sees his death as a punishment or as a disgrace or even as a humiliation. No, Jesus sees this as the most glorious event possible. He sees his death on the cross as the most glorious event. I mean, think about this. In our culture, we have crosses 
in our churches that we, we adorn our walls with. Some of you wear jewelry with crosses around your necks or around your wrists. Sometimes shirts will have a cross on it. In the Roman culture, that would have been like wearing a, church, a shirt today that had an electric chair on it. It'd be like walking around with an electric chair around your neck. It was an instrument of execution. The cross was a humiliating thing, but Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus sees it as the most glorifying thing, and that's because the cross for us is not a mere instrument of execution. It's the power of Jesus and life through God and his death and his resurrection. And so we should sing, oh, the old rugged cross. I cherish it. I cling to it because the cross is a wonderful thing. And so we see this great truth here in this, in this passage. And this truth, again, for your theological bank is this, is that the cross brought glory to both the Father and the Son. That's the first element of the table talk. But the table talk continues. And we move on to the next few verses here where Jesus gives a command. You've heard this before, but clue into it tonight in a new way. Verse 34, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We come into this night and we call it Maundy Thursday. And maybe you wonder what that means. Well, Maundy is a word that's derived from a Latin word, mandatum, mandate. And so Maundy Thursday is new mandate, new command Thursday. That's what this is. It's referring to this right now because we have a command here, and the command is this. Jesus attaches immense importance to Christian love. Don't tune me out in this. Jesus attaches immense, immense value, immense weight and importance to Christian love. You know, is it really a new command? Well, it's not new in the sense that it never been heard before. It's not new in the sense that it never been spoken before. It's new in the sense that there's a higher position. There's a higher calling of love. There's a higher example in Jesus that's provided for us. That's the essence of this table talk. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's a new command. It's not new in the sense of, of, of a new baby. It's new in the sense of its importance, that there's a higher calling, that there's a higher demand that has to be satisfied. That's the kind of command this is. Now, uh, make no mistake about these words. Make no mistake about them. Love is to be the defining quality of Jesus' disciples. I mean, did you catch it? He said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's to be the, the brand distinctive of, of the Christian. It's the brand identity. It's the, the defining attribute of Jesus' disciples. You know, it's interesting. My wife and I have some daughters and there's one daughter who shall remain nameless who refuses to rinse out 
her dishes, rinse off her dishes, or to place them in the dishwasher. Hello, are there any parents out there who know what I'm talking about? And so this, this, this one particular daughter will take her salad, and she'll put like half of a bowl of water's worth in that salad and leave it in the sink. She'll take her bowl of cereal with the leftover milk and the little floaties in it, and she will fill it up halfway with water and leave it sit in the sink. This despite the fact that we've been telling her for 15 years to wash out her dish and put it in the sink. The child must be hard of hearing. Here's the thing. She doesn't consider it to be a command from us. She considers this to be a suggestion. Something that she's, she can do if she wants to. It's optional for her. I tend to think that, that the Christians seem to take this command, this mandate of Jesus, and treat it as if it's a suggestion. Like my daughter who won't rinse out her, her, her dishes and put them in the sink. We treat love for one another in this way. And so what do we have? We have churches who are against one another. We, we, have, we have people who, who divide themselves based on, on, on their understanding of God's word. We divide within the church. And Jesus has made it really clear. He gave us a new mandate at the most critical time, the most intimate discussion, the biggest to that point discussion at the table. He says, look, I give you a new command, a new mandate. And this will be the distinctive thing about you and about my people is that you love one another. This is how you'll be known. Well, how do we do that? Is it a notion in our heads? Is, is that what it means to love one another? No, it's a practice in our lives. And, and the measure, the standard of this command, of this mandate, is Jesus. Jesus is the measure of this command. He says it right here for us. It's right there in black and white. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. He is the standard. And so let me ask you this question. How has Jesus loved you? I mean, those of you who are sitting in this room tonight, those of you who are worshiping with us via Christ Church Online, how has Jesus loved you? In your rebellion, in your brokenness, how, how, how has Jesus loved you in your worst moments, in your most unlovable moments? This is the kind of love that we are to have for one another. And I'll tell you this, I'm speaking to Christians here, people who follow Jesus. We need to have this kind of love in these times. The church of Jesus has to be unified. We have to start to take this command seriously. And so we have this mandate. And I pray that Christ Church at Grove Farm, let, let, let's just talk about our, our little family here, that Christ Church at Grove Farm would be a place that's marked by the love of Jesus. That, that people would see us, experience us, witness our lives. And they'd say, man, there's something different about those people. Really, that when you would come into this place, you would sense something 
that, that just reeks of the love of God in Christ that we share in our hearts and with one another. This is to be the mark of the Christian. So we have this command. And Jesus attaches great importance to love among the Christians. I'll tell you this. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For Christ's love compels us. What compels us? Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. Christ's love compels us and it compels us to follow the new mandate, the new command that we receive and we commemorate here on this Maundy Thursday. So we got our, our, our command, we've got our truth, but I think there's a warning also for us in this text. It's a part of the table talk. Let's go there now. Would you look at this with me? Finishing this passage, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Listen, here's the warning. The warning, I think, is pretty clear. Beware of self-ignorance. Beware of self-ignorance. I mean, here's Peter. Don't you love Peter? Aren't you glad? I mean, David said, and I were talking earlier, and David said, Peter is a gift to the church. Why is he a gift to the church? Because we can all identify with him so much. I hope you see yourself in Peter. Rash, inconsistent, quick to make a promise, quick to make a grand declaration, not so quick to fulfill it. And so Peter stands up and he says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'll do it, Jesus. He stood up and he's singing the song and he's raising his hand. And the next thing you know, he's going to deny. And Jesus points us out, no, no, Peter, you, you will actually disown me three times before all of this is through. And so we have here this warning against our own self-ignorance. I mean... Consider your own heart. There's an amount and degree of weakness in every human heart. Every one of us. I mean, if you need that reminder, every single one of us has this weakness in our own hearts, just like Peter. And here's the thing we don't realize. How far we might fall if and when we're tempted. We tend to underestimate how much we might fall when we're tempted. I'll put it this way. I think the seeds of all kinds of sin are in every human heart. The seeds of all kinds of sin are in every human heart. I think we see this lately. I'll give you an example that's been personally pertinent to me. And I think we're living in times, certainly, where it seems like there, there are so many pastors, well-known pastors, who find themselves in crisis. Much of it because of their own undoing. Much of it because of their own decisions. A lot of it because they've gone their own way. And it'd be really easy for me and for David and for Gideon and Pastor John 
to sit and look at those guys down our nose and say, man, I can't believe they did that. But here's the thing that we have to recognize is that we, in our own self-ignorance, are prone to the same kind, prone to wander. We just sang it. And so there's this warning for us that we have to be mindful. We have to beware of our own self-ignorance. I'll read you again from the epistles, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Listen here with, with the scripture. This is familiar to some of you. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Careful when you stand, lest you fall. There's this warning, right? Because we have a tendency to get real comfortable. And so let me give you three things that you can do as a way of guarding against this self-ignorance. The first one is this. Have a humble sense of your own frailty. Have a humble sense of your own innate weakness. I think that's one of the lessons we get from the table talk that we're seeing here. Here's the second thing. Have a constant dependence on the strong one, on Jesus, for strength. There's no way that you or I, with, within our hearts, can withstand temptation on our own. It's not a battle that we can win on our own. And so there has to be a sense of dependence that goes along with our humility, that we're dependent on God for strength. And the third thing I'd say is this. There needs to be a pattern of, of daily prayer that asks God to hold us up. Listen, we got some young people up here leading us in worship tonight. Don't you love that? I love the diversity on the stage tonight of, of young and old. Old being me. And Pastor John, too. Love you, Pastor John. But listen, young, young leaders, you have to have a daily dependence. You have to daily go before God and ask him to hold you up. Because none of us are unlike Peter. There's this warning that we get. So we have the truth. The truth that, that God the Father and the Son are glorified. We have this, this command that's a part of the table talk. That we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And then there's this warning that we see also. And this warning is that, man, be on guard. Beware of your own self-ignorance. You know, there was another memorable moment at the table. And though the moments we just discussed were increasingly momentous, the momentous, most momentous event at the table, of course, when Jesus instituted the great sacrament that we call communion, something we're going to observe here tonight. It's really kind of the, the ultimate table talk. And, and through this, this object lesson, using simply the cup and the bread, Jesus illustrates his ultimate moment, his body broken for us. It happens here at the table. And I think one of the things we have to do as we consider this moment tonight that we're going to share this communion as we observe the sacrament, is that this thing that we call communion, that's so important in the life of the church, 
can really easily be contorted, can really easily be twisted. I mean, consider again what you heard Ray read tonight to us, 1 Corinthians 11, just one part of that. The scripture says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, pardon me, in other words, there's this, this command, there's this, again, warning to check yourself. And so I say to you today, I say to all of us, as we come to the table, as we prepare to come to the table, check yourself. I mean, the Corinthians were using this meal to fill their bellies. Read the context. Read chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And you'll see that they were getting drunk. They were treating this as some kind of feast, the Lord's Supper. Some people were eating so much, other people would walk away hungry. They were treating it like it was, it was a buffet of some kind. Well, well, we can come to the table with the wrong reasons and the wrong intentions in mind also. We might come to the table and think, well, this takes away my sins. That, that partaking in the bread, partaking of the cup takes away my sin. Listen, only Jesus, only Jesus takes away our sins. This is symbolic. This is an object lesson where we do experience the presence of God. But it's not the sacrament of communion that takes away our sins. Jesus does that. Don't, don't come to the table for the wrong reasons. Examine yourself. Check yourself. Some, some might just do it to fit in. I mean, perhaps tonight you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, we're going to do communion. Re- are, are you really prepared to come to the table? Don't just do it because everyone else does. Perhaps tonight you should examine yourself. Check yourself and say, okay, am I coming to the table in remembrance of Jesus, of his sacrifice, his body broken, his blood shed, because that means everything to me. That is life to me. Are you coming out of that or are you coming to fit in? Still others may come just to fulfill a ritual, just something that we do, go through the motions. Look, none of these are acceptable. Let's not be like the Corinthians who were contorting this sacred meal as we come and we have this table talk, the ultimate expression of table talk tonight. Let's come back to the heart of this blessed sacrament tonight as we come to the table. You know, Luther, we talked about Martin Luther. And one of the things perhaps he said at that grand table in the black cloister was this, he talked about the sacrament. And, and, and Luther taught that the sacrament was, was expressed so that God would be glorified. That God would be thanked. That God would be praised as a part of this, this great and sacred meal. Luther said that the Lord's Supper should in fact be a thanksgiving ceremony that points to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And so tonight, yeah, check yourself. And here's what I would say. Examine yourself. Are there any self-ignorant ways in you? Coming to the table is a perfect opportunity for you to examine yourself and see, Lord, and ask him if there's any self-ignorant ways in you. It's a way to come and seek Christ's presence. We come to the table. 
He is the source by which we can love one another. And so we come seeking him. And certainly, it's an opportunity for us to worship God. We have victory through Jesus. It is done. It is complete. We could speak of it in past tense because it's already been done. And so as you come to the table tonight, there is a place for you. Would you come and take your place at the table, examining yourself, seeking the power of God in your life, and ultimately worshiping God, bringing him glory for what he has accomplished through Jesus Christ. Come and take your place at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have prepared a place for us at your table. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a window into the table talk. And through the table talk, we see this great truth that through even the death of Jesus on the cross, that which was intended for humiliation is actually for your glory and for the glory of your son Jesus. So we thank you for your great compassion and your holiness and your wisdom. We thank you for Jesus and his perseverance, his commitment, his power displayed at the cross. And Lord, we take this this mandate, this new command, a higher calling to love one another very seriously. We pray, Lord, as we come into your presence that you would strengthen us through your Holy Spirit to truly love one another. And God, finally, as we come before you tonight, we come in humility, asking you to examine our hearts, show us any ways that are self-ignorant. Strengthen us, Lord. Hold us up day by day. We're dependent on you. We thank you, Lord, for this time to reflect on these things. We thank you for Jesus. And, Lord, we thank you for the table. It's our great pleasure, Lord, to come to this table tonight, not out of habit. Not just because everyone else is doing it. Not because eating the bread or drinking from the cup will take away our sins, but because we know the one who alone can take away our sins, your son, Jesus Christ. And, God, we pray all of this in his matchless, powerful, glorious name. Amen.